0: Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. And Shallow Grave, Children of Corlys, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy in the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com.
1: everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. My name is Anurag Das, here with your favorite co-hosts, Wilson Hunter and Brian Cook. Today, we've got a spicy, actually kind of quite the opposite topic to talk about. Brian Wilson, what's up? What to do? Hello. Hey, friends.
2: Hope you're doing well today.
1: We are going to dive right into today's topic, but first... I guess so we're not really diving into today's topic. We're just going to talk about the quick hits. You can never forget them because they're always there. I'm going to hit you bop, bop, bop real fast. Donations first. Want to say thanks to our number one supporter, Dick Fisher. Dick Fisher, once again, for the continued support. You will be at SCG Syracuse, apparently. So we're definitely going to hang out, the three of us and you. And anybody who wants to meet the legendary Dick Fisher, you're also welcome to join. Um, also, thank you. Shout out to Kyle Flynn. You may remember him from an earlier episode where we discussed his Jun Phoenix deck. Um, thank you for your donation as well. Phil blackman our editor greatly appreciates all of your support as these dollars these contributions go directly into his pocket as he makes this episode sound crystal clean crisp uh, in your ear hit me what uh, has been going on well last
0: sunday my round one opponent was a very thin smart and handsome four color miracles pilot by the name of anurag das
1: and that's the end of this week's episode uh see you guys next time and uh it turns out we were both
0: recording/streaming slash and Honorag and I had an epic battle where uh the better player won. I don't like what this is now going. Our record is now 7-7 and 1, so Honorag cannot brag about having a better record against me anymore.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty dark day. I was honestly I have some internal reservations about the epicstorm.com that deck is pretty pretty uh stressful for me to play against i think uh, compared to regular storm even regular like ad nauseum tendal storm is is something else but that was a i don't even feel like that match was close i feel like i just got bodied
0: so uh one current thing about your list is i know you're very high on veil vale of summer recently i found that a bunch of people are just aren't doing anything and holding open veil vale of summer to die to grape shot because it's neither blue or black
1: yeah grape shot has killed me a couple times and it's it's it feels really bad because i'm just like wow haha i'm gonna blow them out with this veil vale of summer but that doesn't Really happened nearly as much as I uh, I thought it would, or rather the storm players are wizening up and starting to play around Vale. With TS, it's actually not that difficult to get up to
0: twenty storm either, because you have all these artifact mana and aquavians and ad nauseum. But if you're interested in watching that match between myself and Honor, I head over to the Epic Storms YouTube channel, watch
1: him get rolled. Das destroyed. What else you got going on? I heard the Epic recently came into some bountiful, glorious funds
0: yeah so every august is the site's uh domain hosting is due so i usually put up a post on the website asking hey if you appreciate the site's content now would be the time to donate that sort of thing and we crushed our goal like way more than i expected so thank you to everyone that donated it's greatly appreciated everything past our cost is going straight to our writer's uh, annual holiday gift so I've already sort of planning out where the money's going and that sort of thing. But our writers will be covered. I will not be keeping a cent of this, I promise. Uh, but on top of that, last episode, we talked about bringing on a couple new positions, including an editor. We've actually hired someone or brought someone on. Mitch Blankspor, he runs the modern uh, Blue Red Storm website. He was overly qualified, so I felt like he was the perfect fit.
1: What gift did you get your writers last year?
0: Uh, it was actually super cool, in my opinion.
1: I contacted
0: the artist for Burning Wish, Scott Fisher, and he printed the first ever Burning Wish prints, and he signed them. Keep storming. He had to request the image or the image file from Wizards to even get them printed, which was really awesome.
1: Wait, that's actually like that's actually super cool. I thought when you told me earlier you were just referencing like signed copies of the card, but no, it's actually like a print of the art. That's way, way, way cooler.
0: Yeah, and I I got them framed and everything, and all the writers seem to really like them. Uh, one of them actually started tearing up, which was a you know little awkward, but I'm glad they enjoyed it. Yeah, you guys are a tightly knit family. That's kind of cute. It was Wilson. It was. So Wilson, how's your diet
2: going? It's going pretty well. So I'm 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 really hungry at at this point. The last couple days have been rough, but I'm two weeks in. I've lost approximately 20 pounds. Woo! But that is largely because I was eating terribly before my diet.
0: Can't confirm.
1: Yeah, you know what they say about diets, right? It's like 80% in the kitchen, 20% in the bedroom, not in the kitchen.
2: That's right. So I've been craving a lot of seafood because I'm able to eat this one lean and green meal per day. And the lean meats that I have been picking have been things like certain types of fish, scallops, shrimp. Calamari? Calamari. I have, I have not had it. I don't even know if that's uh, approved, but it probably is.
1: I love calamari. Calamari is just, like, nice. Every time I go out to an Italian place or just any place in general, they have calamari. Like, I'm just, like, so suckered into buying it. It's just, like, unconditional reflex. I have no control over it. My mind and my body slaves to calamari. Delicious. I had calamari and crab legs for dinner last night. So um, it says Wilson has another update. In parentheses, JP. And Wilson wouldn't tell us what this was when he was writing the show notes. So now I'm, you've, you've piqued my curiosity, good sir. What is it? I just
2: have to share my excitement with our listeners that Stern Pinball has announced that they are creating a new Jurassic Park pinball machine. And it looks really sweet. I've got to get my hands on this Yay. thing. So I'm really excited about it.
1: Woohoo. That was
0: huge news.
2: I watched their, their, pre-release stream of the jurassic park machine there's a a t-rex that eats the ball it's insane
1: on my end i recently watched a couple movies i watched midsummer uh, with my fiance and i also watched once upon a time in hollywood the new quentin tarantino movie and i feel like tarantino is the kind of director where you either love him or hate him uh i happen to love tarantino but not gonna lie this movie was definitely it just felt different yeah midsummer was also it's directed by ari Ari aster who made the movie hereditary last year which was supposed to i think it was like one of the the, one of the best horror films that came out last year and this movie was also like if you're a horror fan this is not your run-of-the-mill horror movie it is definitely more on the unsettling type rather than the jump scare you uh you know make you throw popcorn everywhere type so definitely recommend both of those movies to watch if you have time let's move into the feedback though for the last episode we've got some three delicious comments that uh bryant wilson and i will take a look at bryant take away the first one i was kind of surprised
0: to hear bryant argue against metagaming for smaller paper events but it makes sense if your goals are only to grind mtgo ticks and win gps i feel the opposite way because my goal is to maximize my record each event and most of the events i play are local paper tournaments from the fringe thing on reddit so we actually had a little bit of a back and forth on reddit and my main thing is that if you're metagaming to win your local every week most local events in non-metropolitan areas are somewhere between 10 and 14 people. Probably if you're in a big city like New York city or LA, you're going to have bigger turnouts. That's just how it works. But you know, for smaller cities, 10 to 14 is fairly regular. And if you're, let's say, let's say that there's a death and taxes guy that shows up every week and you're playing four copies of massacre in your board. Do you think that guy is going to keep on coming back every, or that person will keep on coming back every week? They're going to get sick of you over metagaming for them and just not come back. And that's something that the Legacy community can't really handle. But also, who are you doing a favor for? Like, I get that you want to win your extra $10 in store credit every month. But I think keeping the Legacy community together is a little bit more important. But also, you're doing a disservice to your store. And I'm not trying to, like, attack anyone. But... Keep in mind that that's the store now losing that entry fee every week and that person's not buying candy bars or sleeves or soda or anything or card singles. And while you want to do well, I think that if you play normal stock list or brews or something where you're just not targeting individuals in the store, it ends up being better because... One, you're not getting any better by playing these overhated lists for when you actually do go to a real event. And two, you don't want to ruin other people's fun and just not make them come back. I think, I don't know. I've
1: said what I had to say on this. I kind of feel like, I may I use the word inbreeding for a specific metagame, uh, especially if it's a smaller metagame, like a 14-person, whatever number you used, uh, metagame is something that goes both ways, right? Like you could look at it, I mean, it's just like it's a very subjective thing, right? Let's say you bring your four massacres to an event like that. Who knows? Maybe the next time you go and play against this Zeth and Taxes player, they go turn one Caracas, turn two port, turn three Flagstones of Trocare, and, you know, you stare at these cards in your hand, and, you know, it's just, like, super, super awkward. Um, it, it goes both ways. It's kind of one of the reasons why maybe, you know, playing in a smaller event is kind of fun, exciting. It's a different type of magic, yes, you know, but that's kind of the beauty of magic in general. It's a very flexible game, right? You need to be, like, like what do you think is going to happen at a Pro Tour? You think people are not going to, quote, un- inbreed? I mean, people will definitely try to attack and target, you know, the best decks and things like that. Pro Tours are very different from a local event, though.
0: At a Pro Tour, you don't know that Wilson's going to be playing Grixis Control, for example, and now you're going to build your deck to beat Wilson, even though... Wilson's deck that he's playing might be 1% of the metagame. Like, it's just not the same thing.
1: Well, I think in Pro Tours, though, you can still technically metagame and have, like, a couple card choices in your deck that are just obscenely narrow, you know what I mean? Because, you know, when you go into a Pro Tour. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jarvis, uh, when you listen to this, if you listen to this, but historically there are like a couple good decks that, you know, are the the targeted decks at Pro Tour, at, at least the couple, last couple times. I mean, Modern being the exception, but in Standard, it just seems like there's like a couple decks, you know, that you want to be able to beat. Remember there was that one time where there was like that, that blue-green Karn deck or something like that? Anyways, the point that I'm trying to get at is like in each environment, developing your list or inbreeding it or whatever you want to say, it works both ways, right? But
0: you can't compare a standard uh, Pro Tour to Legacy. Like there's at most five competitive decks at a standard pro tour where in legacy
1: there's i
0: don't know somewhere between 15 and 30 viable choices
1: well i mean if we want to get deep and down and dirty with it i would also say that in a small 14 person event you're going to only have like you know five or six decks where you can actually afford to you know list each deck out like i get you know how many requests i get where i'm just like where i hear hey my meta game is like two show intel decks one this deck you know one eldrazi deck one morpho deck should i play miracles and i'm like no you should not you know well that goes back to
0: like Legacy is a very expensive format and people can't switch decks easily. Like if you're this person that invested in death and taxes and some guy is out to ruin your fun, you can't just switch to another deck. Well, you can if you have money, but most people just don't have enough money to go out and just buy a new deck outright. That, that was probably six months to a year's worth of their work.
1: You are right. People don't people don't change legacy decks. They change sideboard cards. I'm going to quote Lawrence on that one. I don't know who he got the quote from. But it's not like every deck is just stone. Like, yes, Massacre is a good card against death and taxes. But, like, can you imagine what happens when people start playing cards like Sarah Avenger or hallowed Safekeeper or spirit keeper whatever the card is that actually cloud plays all the time or I don't know just like wonky stuff or like maybe I'll just violin my sanctum prelate and name four because you know you've hit killed me with massacre too many times the, the, the point is is like it, it goes back and forth and back and forth and I get what you're saying it's probably not the same level or same type of magic that you would play you know maybe online or at a Grand Prix or you're at like a, a non-local level but magic is a flexible game I think that's part of the beauty in itself. Nice
2: discussion, guys. I'm going to move on to the next comment, and it begins, Great podcast, as always.
1: Well, thank you so much.
2: I really like that you all are willing to debate and explore topics on which you have differing opinions. That is timely. IMO, your best content is when there's disagreement and you each provide arguments and thought experiments to help support your positions. Helps to break down the common legacy community problem of groupthink. That is from Paradigm72. Thank you for that. We really appreciate it particularly because I believe when we started the show we said that that was something that we wanted to do is make sure that we maintain our individual opinions and perspectives and keep each other honest by putting those out there and not being totally convinced by one another so that you all can hear the the good discussions. I know as a listener of other podcasts, not just Magic, I'm not calling anybody out, but just podcast content in general, I don't like when the hosts all agree on everything, and I like like you said, paradigm, uh, me personally as a listener, I enjoy that type of discussion where people are differing in opinions and going back and forth and all those things. So in addition to that, I'm a fairly argumentative person, and uh, sounds like these guys here can be as well. So
1: and it was definitely very like timely, extremely scripted. We have actually word by word pasted our entire conversation so we're just reading off the the playbook here. Um no but yeah I think that's a good comment. I do like I do like the sharp sort of uh discourse that we have. It's very fun. I don't really get this kind of exposure in in, in any other environment so Yeah the legacy chats and
2: Discord chats and all these various groups that I have been in and out of over time have sometimes seemed to get groupthinky because people like to feel like everybody is agreeing with them. And that starts to sort of bother me after a while. I like, to, I like to shake things up a little bit.
0: I would agree with that. I do think that the Legacy community suffers from outspoken individuals. And then because they're outspoken, they want their opinions to be taken seriously. So they end up agreeing. And just if you think for yourself and think a little bit differently, you might see something that others don't see, like the Mox Opals we were talking about or Hope of Gear you just don't have to agree with what everyone says, and you should try out different things.
1: Can I tell you guys, this is a completely random aside, but something sad that happened to me today. My opponent used a liquid metal coating to animate one of my lands, artifact animate one of my lands, and then blew it up with the fiery confluence. I like that. Kind of sad. I also had an EE on four in play that I had to tap out for, and they blew that up as well. So. Oh, And no. hey, you want to know the saddest part of it all? the very end, they dealt two damage to me, too, with the fiery confluence. Anyways, the the last comment is provided by Mr. Tofu5000. Your story had nothing to do with anything. I prefaced it with that, though. I said it had nothing to do with it. I warned you, but anyways. First the movie thing, and now this? Jeez. Uh, So Mr. Tofu5000... Before we read your comment, I got to ask you, what happened to the other 4,999 Mr. Tofus? Uh, But the comment reads, just wanted to try out the At Eternal Glory podcast, and now I'm straight up binging the episodes. Great stuff! Awesome discussion! Really relaxed and fun atmosphere while talking competitive legacy. Thank you so much for the high quality content. You know, I'm not going to speak for the others here, Mr. Tofu, but... Actually, I see you in my Twitch chat all the time. What a do, dude. Uh, welcome, welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed the content. Thank you. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I do this because it's fun. I do this because you and all the other listeners enjoy it. So uh, thank yourself. Pat yourself on the back for being awesome.
2: Yes, so that wraps up our feedback for the day. So let's dive into today's topic. And interestingly, Paradigm's comment, which I read, which talked about our disagreements, I was thinking about that as, as we're going through the show notes, and I think we disagree maybe the least on this episode, as we have in uh, compared to our other episodes. I don't know. I think there's still going to be some lively conversation here. But as we went through this, I, I, I at least thought that we had some similar opinions. So we'll we'll share all these and get into it. But the discussion of the day is around four-color snow control. And the reason for this is because this past week from our observations, has been the legacy community chirping about the potential and desired banning of Rin and Six. And a lot of this come, goes around the fact that people perceive it is too easy to play a smattering of good cards right now in just a general good stuff control deck. And so... We're going to address that. We're going to dissect the deck, four-color snow control. What is it? Go through all the different elements of the deck. Talk about inherent weaknesses. Talk about how maybe you and we should be combating the deck if, if we're not going to play it ourselves. And then how could we improve the deck if we are going to play it? So are you guys ready to dive on in?
1: So I want to say a special shout-out to uh, MTGO user kernovac uh, there's no U in the name. CurnaVac, thank you for the inspiration for this topic. I hope you enjoy this episode. So before we even begin talking about the nuances of the deck, I guess we should preface um, sort of the framework with which we are looking at this deck. So a couple of weeks ago uh, in Star City, the it was like a team open in Baltimore or something like that. I don't know where it was. There was a team open and Daryl Ayers, the dreamy wonder that he is, made, I think I believe it was a top four finish with with this variation on four color snow and he also played in some of the challenges and online beforehand and so you can definitely find his list out on star city games of note it does have astrolabs it does have red and six and it is a four color snow deck based on the colors blue green red and black so grub berg whatever you want to call it there's no white in this deck and then also additionally in the same color combination we have a slight spin on um, the deck provided by Harlan Fur. I don't know if I, I can ever say his name right. Um, but yeah, his, his list is a little bit different. Check it out. It's got Tarmogoyf in the main deck. So definitely like two different takes on the same color combination. So let, let, let's let first dive in to why this deck can even exist in the first place. I think you guys will remember before, whenever, like July of last year, June of last year, there was a certain 1-2 Elf Shaman hybrid mana with three abilities. Some called it a Planeswalker that allowed people to actually get away with playing these wonky four-color main decks. You know, they would be so powerful that they could exist in, the, in, in a world of like, you know, turn one Blood Moon and things like that, Wasteland Delvers. This... Is not that deck because Delver got banned, right? So Red and Six is somewhat uh, is seen as a replacement. Not looking at Red and Six, I think the card that actually just defines this list is the card Arkham's Astrolab, and so the whole mana base is just completely warped around the card Arkham's Astrolab what exactly does arkham's astrolab allow you to do well i think in magic at least the way i look at it especially when i'm playing from like the perspective of miracles right one of the reasons i think i would ever want to play miracles is because the mana base is just so pristinely clean just like straight up out of a car wash clean and arkham's astrolab really allows you to do exactly that with your four color mana base right you can fetch snow-covered island on turn one and next turn you can tap it for black mana to cast some sort of ludicrous spell or you know you can use your mountain and wasteland to cast a Ren in six and then you start looping wastelands or whatever it is uh basics are powerful arkham's astrolabe empower sorry Ar- arkham's astrolabe okay i'm gonna say arkham's astrolabe so many times whenever i say it, just pretend i'm saying arkham's astrolabe it empowers the basics so i think you get a lot out of not you know losing to to wasteland uh, especially when Delver is probably one of the top tier decks in the format right now um having a stable mana base is exactly what you want um Arkham's Astrolab also works really well with a new card that was recently printed in in Modern Horizons and that is Prismatic Vista so in your four color deck you can basically play as many different basic colors as you want you have that one unique better than evolving wilds fetch land that lets you get everything and then Arkham's Astrolab will bridge the gap between your two and three cmc spells so that's interesting and then also just random asides like you know arkham's astrolab can turn your wastelands into colored mana and they're also very good at turning off unique effects like choke and like richard on port like richard on port not being good against arkham astrolab is actually just hilarious to me
2: yeah so i will i will say really quick that Prismatic Vista, we can talk about this a little bit more later, but is not in a lot of these decks even though you did mention it. It's not in Daryl's list that we will be sharing, but it is an option if you want to run a lot of these basic lands. But what do I think about Renin 6? I think that in addition, let's let's talk about that with Arkham's Astrolabe together, right? So, I'm looking at this deck list. You can play bas- two basic islands, one basic swamp, a bunch of non-basic lands, a couple wasteland, and a two-mana planeswalker that costs a green and a red. So I think that's just like pretty insane, right? And not only can you play that card, you can play that card very easily and you're fairly immune to a lot of non-basic hate. And this is the crazy thing about Rain and Six and I think is what making it is making it so good in these decks is that it helps you protect your mana base after it gets into play. So, I think traditionally, one issue with a lot of these four color decks is obviously going to be the mana base and the clunkiness and everything. But not just Astralade, but with Ren and Six, once that's in play, I mean, you've shored up just being able to cast anything else in your deck for basically the rest of the game, going deep into the late game, hitting all your land drops for your, your Snap, Cola Guns Command, all these things that cost a lot of mana. It's just pretty amazing, and then I think that the the pinging ability. Obviously, I think that the the metagame, and we can get into this, is you know potentially shifting to get a little bit better against that. But it it has been quite good. It kills the unflipped Delver and young Pyromancers and Baleful Strixes and all all sorts of things that you definitely want to be doing.
1: Yeah, I think um, if you look at the card from your typical Planeswalker perspective, if you've got you know the the uptick generates card advantage. The downtick protects itself. The ultimate is game ending, right? That sounds like a very familiar two blue and a blue planeswalker to me. Um, that is a legacy all-star. I'm not talking about the architect of thought. Um, and so for that reason alone, I think it's 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 pretty powerful. It's also not blue, which I think um, maybe this is a topic for another day, or maybe this is just one of the reasons why Ren and Six is so like, you know, discussed right now. But it's sort of like a it's distinctly red and a green and the blue decks are just trying to like absorb it into their strategy. It is that powerful? The the card is that versatile. I think there this card just the number of advantages it has is is. I mean we could go on and on and on about it, but I think the way that it distorts mana is is probably the the most interesting thing about the card. Do you guys think though that this card is ban worthy? So something that I've read a lot is
0: uh, uh, death rate shaman's back. We have to deal with all these four color pile decks. And it's just not fun. And I don't like the comparison to Deathrite Shaman. The issue with is that Deathrite Shaman used to allow these blue decks to have a Birds of Paradise-esque effect off of an Underground Sea. So you could be playing a blue deck and go from 1 to 3 mana on turn 2, allowing you to play a turn 2 Leavold Emissary of Trust or True Name Nemesis, which were mere defining. Where Red and Six doesn't break that gap. It is not a Birds of Paradise. It simply allows you a land drop the rest of the game, much like any other card advantage engine would. I don't know. It could be something like Searcher as Kanta if you really want to hit all your land drops. I'm not saying that Search gives you a land every turn. I'm just saying it's a card advantage engine. Um, there's other things in history that have lo- allowed you to draw a card every turn, and it's not terribly different from those, except for the fact that it's additionally removal and a win condition. So it's a little bit different in those aspects. That said, I don't think it's comparison to Death Rate Shaman is fair. It does fix mana like Death Rate Shaman did, which is absolutely fine. But they're not the same. In general, I think that legacy players are slow to adapt, which is something that I and I've mentioned this in other episodes actually, but are people doing the best job that they can at adapting to Renin 6, or are they just playing their same 75 cards over and over? Because Renin 6 is definitely beatable. Something before uh, the show started was Wilson mentioned that Young Pyromancer is pretty much unplayable right now due to Renin 6. And I thought that was a very interesting observation because I haven't heard that yet. And he's right. These Grixis Delver decks that were playing Young Pyromancer have vanished. And now they're playing Dreadhorde Arcanist, which, you know, having a 3 defense is relevant. So, if you're building your deck, you should consider, hey, minus 1 deals 1 damage, probably not very good. It would make me reevaluate cards like Baleful Strix. And these are the give and takes that you have to do with metagaming and adapting to new cards. Uh, do I think it's ban-worthy? Absolutely not. I think that people need to... Take the time to reconsider their deck and their strategy and maybe even play some cards specifically to deal with Ren and Six. We're going to talk about some of them later and I think that part of the show will be very fun.
1: I want to point out. I guess I'm going to cut people some slack because let's be clear here, right? We just had a slathering of new cards injected into the format, whether it's through, you know, War of the Sparks or Modern Horizons or whatever the other set was in between. I don't, I don't know whatever was. There's a lot of new cards in the meta, and I think it'll take some time before people are able to figure out, uh, like you know, exactly what the best best seventy-five is for for each of the, each each deck. Um, that being said um brian i think i'm in the same camp as you having played the card a lot i kind of have slowly realized that it is it is not exactly as broken as i thought right because you mentioned right there's a tick up and you're drawing a card every turn, I want to point out that you're not actually drawing a card every turn. What you are doing is you are buying back a land from your graveyard, right? That is technically card advantage, but believe me, the diminishing returns are so, so real, right? The difference between drawing an actual random card, like a threat you could cast or a removal spell that you can, you can deploy, that kind of thing, is different from get back my flooded strand. All right, play my flooded strand. Fetch, get a tundra. Get back my flooded strand. Play my flooded strand. Fetch, get... Why did I say tundra? Get uh, this other... Like, like an island or a swamp or whatever, you know, duel you want. Why did I say Flooded Strand? It is it is very limited in terms of what it does. The, the ultimate is game-ending for sure, or very, it's very powerful. Maybe maybe not game-ending, but definitely very, very powerful and uh, defines how games would be played out. Like, you definitely don't want the Ren ultimate. But, you know, there is that period of time when Ren is at four loyalty and it's buying back a land for the third time or the second time or whatever. Five loyalty, six loyalty, where it's just buying back lands and, like, it's not actually, like impacting the board assuming there aren't any x1s in play so it's not exactly the same as death right shaman which you know if you look at death right shaman right just being in play was killing your opponent to turn two points of damage a turn it was main deck graveyard hate so it was beating cards like um Snapcaster mage and then just even things like Reanimator, Dredge, all those decks, you know, it was just game one main deckable to graveyard hate. And then also like oh the one two is not an irrelevant body where it can when it can block value tokens made by you know cards like young pyromancer and things like that. So right, Death Shaman, very clearly, even at uh, Death Shaman also one CMC. The delta between one CMC and two CMC is basically infinite. Yes, it's one CMC technically, but it's basically infinite. Um, so it's very hard to compare the two cards together. I understand there's the psychological aspect of getting, you know, Wasteland locked out of a game. And that sucks. It definitely does not feel good. But I don't think that is necessarily format defining. I
0: know you said it's only one mana difference, but if you add a mana, Crucible of Worlds is very similar. And I don't know, eight to 10 years ago, crucible wasteland was a card where it was a combo that people played and people back then found a way around it like this isn't the first time in legacy that people in wastelanded out of a game
1: right i mean there's literally a deck that is dedicated to doing that uh, aka red green lands and i think people are able to adapt i will say maybe that um the fact that this card is playable in blue shells is a a red flag but then again the call that's that's more of um a statement to the color blue than it is to this card itself. All in all, I wouldn't ban it. Having stepped
2: back from Legacy a little bit the last few months, but still perusing the Legacy interwebs and listening to what everybody had to say, I had to really think about why people are comparing this to Deathrite Shaman. You you, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but from my perspective, I was like, what does this have to do with Deathrite Shaman at all? Like, from my, from my perspective, it has literally nothing to do with it. And I realized... Oh, it's because, and I've talked to a few people about this since then, people do not like this idea that you can play four or five colors in a deck. It's sort of like one of these unwritten rules of legacy fun, is that people like the constraints of colors in deck building. And it makes sense to me that, okay, so Ren and Six, similarly to Deathrite Shaman, both have encouraged and helped these decks that want to play four color mana bases but something i will push back on is arkham's astrolab is a much larger player in making that happen i believe in this deck list, at least ones we're looking at right now um and a, a huge role player in making that happen as well so if you're upset about and six i also think you should be upset about arkham's astrolab if that's why you're upset but then i'll also just piggyback on what you were talking about to with deathrite shaman deathrite shaman is a tempo card and that's a big reason why it was so good in those control decks. Is it helps you with your biggest weakness, which is getting mana on the board quickly, in a way that also helps you in the long game and is disruptive to degenerate decks that rely on the graveyard. I mean, Deathrite Shaman did everything that traditional control deck or mid range deck does not do. Renin Six very different. Renin Six just does more of the value stuff better. It does help your mana base. It helps you get to the late game of casting all your things, but that's just what you want to be doing in a slow mid range deck or a control deck, anyways. Is sort of exactly what the abilities of the card do. So, in my opinion, very very different death- than Deathrite Shaman. I understand the community sentiment against uh, that, uh, just not liking four color decks. It's not personally opinion that I have, but that's sort of what I'm gathering from the community.
1: I will also add a couple more things. There's two things that I wanted. The first is cost right when you build a four color mana base there needs to be a cost right because you are you are accessing a so much more power due to you know just spells in general that you were able to cast right like now rather than just being rug you have access to a card like abrupt decay as well which then again gives you more options and then gives your decks more like flexibility and power level and things like that the cost to this is normally you know you can get wasteland out of the game and then you can actually cast all these spells that you are trying to greedily jam into your deck red and six does technically mitigate that because if you get wasteland you just buy back the land deploy it haha now you're you're multicolored, you know four colored whatever nonsense you're doing is is online that does seem to technically violate um the 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 holy grail of you know casting spells and like the sanctity of mana i, I see that while it does sort of defy that i want to point out that there is a cost though to that right especially when you like look at a card like arkham's astrolab it just from a deck construction perspective i cannot tell you how much i have struggled with trying to fit this you know valuable mana engine alongside everything else that you need to be reasonably competitive in the legacy format so i'm talking about like for example uh, like counter spells removal spells blue count things like that the the cost eventually does add up and um I mean, if you've watched my stream at all, you know I've been piloting this four-color snow, a variation of the four-color snow deck for a while now, and, you know, there are games where I'm just like, well, shit, you know, I died because I cast my ponder, didn't find a blue card, now my force was in my hand, that kind of deal, so on and so forth. There's just a number of things. Um, so there is a significant cost to this deck um, that, you know, a card like Deathrite Shaman never really had, right? Death Deathrite Shaman was just like, play my fetch land, Okay, crack it. Pay a life. Underground seat. That's it. You know what I mean? And like, just make sure that the death right doesn't die. Hope that it doesn't die. If it doesn't die, then you probably just win, kind of deal. Um, I said there were two things, but I kind of just lumped them together there. Um, so yeah, for that reason as well, I kind of feel like ran in six Deathrite Shaman. I get, I get why they look like they might but not be this. Or they, I get, I get why they look like they might be the same, but. They're just so restrictive and prohibitive.
2: Well, Astrolab absolutely has costs. I mean, you're spending this card so that you can play extra colors in your deck. And sure, everybody's oh, you draw a card. Well, just do the math on that. You're not always drawing even a remotely relevant card. Sometimes you're drawing a dead card. Oftentimes you're drawing a card that's relevant may, may not be what you need. You know, so in my opinion, I actually like cards like this where, okay, you get to play a four color deck, but it's because you're playing all of these cards that allow you to play a four color deck that by by themselves, they wouldn't be that great in the format. No one's playing Astrolab in a two color deck, right? The reason to play it is literally so that you can play more colors and it's not really doing anything that great. In fact, it's actually doing something poor.
0: So I have a couple of thoughts. The first is that I think it's a little bit interesting that all three of the cards were printed in the same set. Prismatic Vista, Arkham's Astrolabe, and Renin Six. I wonder if Wizards had any foresight into thinking, hey, in modern, not necessarily legacy because they don't care about us, but if these four-color decks would even become a thing, and what would be the impact? So even if you cut one of these off, I don't think that stops... So hypothetically, let's say they ban Renin 6. I don't think that stops anyone from playing four color. Or they ban Arkham's Astrolabe. I think you could still play four color with just Renin and 6 and Vista. I don't think there's any going back from the point that we're currently at. It would take a multiple fix at this point, which makes me kind of question the people that are screaming ban Renin 6.
2: That's an interesting perspective because I don't think you could play Renin 6 in a Vista deck. You would have to go back to these just atrocious tons of dual lands decks, which while Renin six would mitigate the disadvantage after it got into play. Sure. I think people would feel like it's more fair because in the, in the early parts of the game or in games where you don't have Renin and six, the mana base is just atrocious, right? So I, I can under, I can understand uh, that part of it. Like Astrolab is the card that allows you to really mitigate that, that significant disadvantage with, being able to fetch up your basics on on turns one and two
1: yeah i'm actually in the same boat as wilson um here having played with astrolab a bunch and ran in six a bunch i would argue that in terms of color intensity i think individually neither card is particularly threatening right like i've had a number of games where i'll have to go like you know play an island out play an island out and then randomly in my four color deck with white i have to get a tundra not a tundra a volcanic and a tropical island and i'm just like well this is really awkward i hope my red and six doesn't get countered or sometimes it'll be like it'll go the other way around where i've got like you know a mountain and a savannah i've been there done that send me your thoughts and prayers please um and like my my astrolab just like gets countered or someone will thought seize it away or they'll even see that my mana is rough and they'll like maybe like destroy the Arkham's Astrolab at a disadvantage to themselves in hopes that, you know, my mana gets screwed over. So I definitely do think it is like an A plus B kinda of deal where you want both of them to work together, right? You play the Astrolab out, then it lets you cut the sorry, cast the, the Ren and Six pretty flawlessly off your core mana. So for example, in the deck that I'm playing i I've identified that, you know, basic island and basic mountain with Astrolab is the core that allows me to cast all my spells. Uh, for example, like that. And then you build off of that after that. You like snowball that sort of mana slash card advantage. Um advantage i guess
0: so hypothetically rug delver is one of the most popular decks online according to my spreadsheet it's by far the deck that i've played against the most at this point in time if i'm this rug delver deck with stifles and spell snares and spell pierces and i'm trying to combat this four color control deck with a somewhat good mana base this is a question for you both because i'm curious what your answers would be would you consider boarding in ancient grudge to deal with astrolabe's board?
1: yes I oh, absolutely would. The way and this is just more philosophically on how I look at Rug Deliver as a deck. I Rug Deliver for me will forever not forever but is more of a misnomer, right? I really think it's just Canadian Threshold. and for for you know the more veteran legacy players you kind of understand the difference between canadian threshold and rug delver right threshold in my mind is sort of like the jonathan alexander like play my main deck winter or i've got three of them i'm life from loaming back my wastelands that kind of thing it is a mana control deck that leverages stifle and other you know mana mana related tools to, to generate a mana advantage and then use that to win the game right so um when I say, when I see that my opponent is trying to cheese a proper mana base out using cards like Arkham's Astrolabe and Renin and 6, I'm honestly, in my mind, as, as if I were to play Rug Delver with the experience that I have having played Four Colors Snow, I know that I want to attack uh, the Arkham's Astrolabs and I want to attack the Renin 6s because that is actually one of the weakest points of the deck. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's not fixable, I just think that in its infancy stages, I don't think there's enough. I mean, very few people are actually working on this deck right now. So maybe, maybe if there were like smarter people like Bryant and Wilson working on this, you know, we would have a better mana base that is less susceptible to those kind of um, attacks. But yeah, I, I think I mean, Ancient Grudge is the kind of card you would want out of a deck that is trying to control your mana. Like, like Rugged Delver.
2: Bryant, I will answer that question as well. I would say if Astrolabe was the only artifact in the deck, I would probably board it in. But the fact that it also has Baleful Strix in this deck, I think it's a slam dunk to board it in. All the reasons Anurag just said, plus the fact that Baleful Strix is actually an incredibly annoying card in the mid-game against a lot of your threats in Rugged Over.
0: Cool, thank you for answering. So, our next topic was Plague Engineer as a reason to play this four-color control deck. Anurag, what are your thoughts
1: on Plague Engineer. I literally think Plague Engineer is an absurd, I okay, obviously I literally think it, but Plague Engineer is an absurd card. If you don't have your copies of Plague Engineers right now and you play black, I think you should go and buy them. And I say that very lightly. There are very few cards that I think I would say that about. Like, for example, I would say at the current price that Renon Six is at, I probably wouldn't buy it because I don't know if it's actually that good, but... Um, I mean, if you want to play Ren and Six, by all means, go and buy it. But Plague Engineer is one of those cards where I'm just like, yeah, you want this card. It just does so much for the color combinations that have black, right? If you look at, like, Grixis or... Maybe not Esper, but I guess Grixis is the only real color combination. But anyways, it just... The hole in Grixis control right now is really that you just don't have access to clean mana removal in the form of Swords to Plowshares or something that you know other decks might have, um, or like Abrupt Decay for example. Right, just uh, you have a hodgepodge smattering of like fatal pushes and lightning bolts and edicts and k commands and it's just honestly it's like disgusting and the fact that you know the grixis deck can actually put it all together is very impressive to me but plague engineer fills up so many of the holes so the first thing is you know the minus minus one uh minus one minus one passive static whatever that it has is is just insane against decks you know like uh, just an, a, a whole smattering of decks. So we're looking at, you know, like tribal decks, right? So we're looking at like maybe goblins. We're looking at merfolk. We're looking at elves. I have a number of dedicated moto grinders. So, if, you know, for goblins, goblin lucky one. For for merfolk, tuxdev, right? Um, for elves, actually, I haven't really heard too much about it. But in general, you know, the consensus is from the tribal players. Maybe death and taxes included. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to death and taxes. But in general, I feel like... These these players have just been talking about how how plague engineer has basically been ruining you know the, their 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 success rates uh, compared to normal. I'm not saying that their their success rates are tanking to abysmal levels, but it is significantly you know or it is notably dropping um, to the point where I I even remember Tuxdev you know the Murfolk player saying that they would want to maybe try a list that has no no true name nemeses and just go 16 lords here a bunch of four fours and five fives haha nice plague engineer um that kind of deal um but it but it goes beyond that too because plague engineer is not just engineered plague if it was i don't think it would be nearly as playable the creature okay that's the first thing is one-sided that's another thing and it has death touch. All of these three things combined together just make this a slam dunk of a card. Creature means that it can it can you know block, it can attack, pressure planeswalkers, life totals. Death touch means it's able to trade with cards like, you know, Gurmag Angler, which is notably a problem for the color combination of Grixis. You know, you can trade with um, uh, like reality smasher, thought not seer. You get to kill true name nemesis on each resolution not even like it's not even like an etb trigger it's like as it enters minus minus one you know goodbye true names right so you often get to set up these situations where it's like uh your opponent has a true name in play or they have some x1 in play uh you play your plague engineer it automatically kills the creature and any removal spell that your opponent uses to kill the plague engineer so they can deploy another creature of that type causes a two for one scenario in your favor. So you're actually just generating card advantage off of this. That's another important thing about um the it being a creature body. Like unlike unlike P- engineered plague which is an enchantment, probably should see some more play. I don't know. We'll we'll talk about that later. But um or maybe we won't, I don't know. Uh but but yeah, I mean like it dying to removal spells is almost it's strangely enough that you could call that a good thing because it's costing your opponent a card. Sure it's not like a you know everlasting omnipresent static effect, but you only need it to do a couple things because the rest of your deck is just so good at picking up, uh, you know, the other, the other pieces. Bryant, this one hits hard to Bryant. Plague Engineer is pretty good against Empty the Warrens. Uh, imagine 20 goblins, 21-1 goblins, all leaving the board at the cost of three simple mana. Uh, I imagine that definitely changes how you play out your games in certain matchups and things like that.
0: Against four-color control in the past, I always... Felt comfortable knowing that my opponent only had one out to Empty the Warren's is usually a singleton main deck Toxic Deluge. Feels a lot worse knowing that they have three outs now. But going back to uh, your Goblins comment, I know that the local Goblins player in my area is now playing four tar Fire main deck in an effort to kill literally just for Plague Engineer. He, they also claim that it's good against Stoneforge Mystic decks, which makes sense, but their primary concern is Plague Engineer. I mean, that's one person that has adapted, and I can appreciate that, but at the same time, it's pretty dramatic, you have to admit, to be that dedicated to beating Plague Engineer, where you're playing four copies of Tarfire.
1: I also want to point out, right, like, these lit decks that I've mentioned, so for example, Elves, Merfolk, uh, you know, Goblins, I think are extremely competitive against the blue soupy mid-rangey control decks simply because they, I mean, they attack outside of the bounds of a normal blue deck. You know what I mean? Elves will swarm the board, generate massive mana advantages. Goblins just generates insane sort of value. So you have to be leveraging your value to keep up with theirs. And sometimes you can get easily run over. And then, you know, a deck like Merfolk has Island Walk. That's kind of like a random, like, keyword that no other deck really puts you, you know, through but also it has, like, True Name Nemesis times eight because you know, Phantasmal Image and True Name are powerful cards when put together. And so, I don't know, these are, these are all very competitive decks that I think these players were, like, you know, before they'd be like, okay, I can beat this deck. I'm not, you know, I don't feel behind or, you know, I'm enjoying playing the games and things like that, and now it's kind of just like, well, I hope they don't have Plague Engineer. And when, when you say that about a card in a matchup that before used to be really, really, you were comfortable with... That says a lot about the card. Also, Brian mentioned that, you know, people are playing three copies of Plague Engineer in the 75, up to three, maybe even four. That also says a lot about the card. That means that it is good, right? People are already testing it. You know, people ahead of the curve are on that next level. So, I mean, like I said earlier, if you want to play Plague Engineer and you don't have it yet, I would suggest buying the cards just in case. This is a card that maybe week one I would have suggested speculating on. I think it's that powerful. So there's a deck that... You
0: mentioned it uh, previously that I would like to come back to now, speaking of a value creature deck that's sort of been absent from the metagame recently, which is Death and Taxes. This is a deck that I think traditionally beats a lot of these blue soup decks. And people often forget that Death and Taxes, the creature base is like, what, 75% humans? They play Cavern of Souls just to name human. And I think part of the reason we've seen Death and Taxes take a step back is that this four color control deck has a card in it, possibly three of them, sometimes two, that just kill on the spot 75% of their creatures, backed it up with Colgan's Command and Fatal Push and Abrupt Decay.
1: Death and Taxes doesn't stand a chance. You ever seen a turn three Plague Engineer beat Thalia and Mother of Runes through. Uh... Yeah, I mean, through the Thali attacks, that's pretty powerful, I think. I don't think very many cards can actually do that. And and while we're talking about juicy screenshots, there was once a screenshot I was sent with a Plague Engineer and Plague, pan over to the graveyard, and there are two Mongeese, nimble Mongeese, 1-1s, just dead in the yard. So, uh, yeah, I I do agree. If I had to give you my honest opinion, I feel like of all the tribal decks we sort of just mentioned, Death and taxes seems like the one that would be best-equipped to sort of adapt, expand, and play around, plague engineers.
2: Well, yeah, that's because you listed like three hardcore tribal decks, and then death and taxes. I I understand what you're saying, but it's still very good against it, right? So,
1: let me. Can I jump in, gentlemen? Yeah, don't even ask. There's space in the pool. Don't worry. I'll turn the jacuzzi bubbles on, right now. One sec. It's 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 pretty high tech. Ready? There it is. You feel it?
2: Ah, uh, very, very. Oh yeah. Ooh, that's. Yes, thank you. Listeners of the Eternal Glory podcast by this point probably know that Anurag likes to hype things a bit and gets a little bit excitable about cards. And then Bryant sort of takes the middle road and is pretty uh, nonchalant, back and forth about things. And then cranky old Wilson never likes any cards, right? I have to say I totally agree with you guys on Plague Engineer. Everything you said... Totally insane. I'm not going to rehash it all. But if I had made a card last year that I wanted to put in a Grixis Control deck and had the creativity to come up with this, I mean, this is like literally the perfect card for Grixis Grixis Control. One thing, one very specific thing not mentioned, is the synergy with Gun's Command. So a lot of the late-game Grixis Control game lines come around getting back key creatures from your graveyard. That's really how you take over the game. The fact that the one-sided death touching engineered plague is you can, you can get it back if they deal with it the first time is just too much, you know, to handle. So I I just think that's incredible.
0: Out of the four decks though, death and taxes is the only one that can exile it between Source of Power shares and council's judgment. Just a odd note.
1: I'll give I'll give credit to goblins if they really want to splash white for like rest in peace, but I don't know if that I I'm not I'm not am not part of the goblin gang, so I wouldn't be able to tell you that. Um, I, I also want to just preface for anyone who might be confused when when we say blue soup, we're just talking about these blue value decks that just try to play all the best cards, and that's kind of what this four color snow deck is. If you look at Daryl's list, that you can see he's got all the good value cards like Ren and Six, Baleful Strix jace the mind sculptor snap mage pick a color pick the best card put it in your deck next that's what the, that's what we mean by blue soup just a giant stew so anurag i have a question for you i have an answer
2: what are the inherent weaknesses of this snow soup deck
1: so from my perspective i mean i play a different variation actually let's let's take a look at the, the four color grub deck berg deck and, and look at it from there. I think some of the weaknesses that you would find in Grixis normally will, to a degree, pass over to this deck, right? So your primary forces of removal are Fatal Push, Lightning Bolt, Abrupt Decay, K Command. You know. Threats that are good or are evasive to those list of cards that I just gave you are pretty good. So that is kind of like an expansive list of, of, of answers, but typically I'm thinking Planeswalkers, that um you know like karn which don't really die to bolt or abrupt decay or push or k command basically require a combination of cards from the grixis side to beat those are going to be pretty good garrick relentless maybe it's four cmc so it dodges abrupt decay but it does die to bolt but you do get to make infinite tutus you know if you get to keep chugging along with it you've got maybe like gideon for example but yeah planeswalking is really where i want to be also hogak this is a spoiler alert but yes yes i think merit lodge and um the modern menace hogak uh the gack that smacks and always attacks is is another those are probably in my opinion the best ways that you can go about um exploiting the weakness in the removal suite of this four color snow deck um uh, so that that's really where you want your mindset to be if you want to re-engineer where a card might be good it's going to be um how do i find an answer or a threat that you know their answers don't line up well to and a seven mana eight eight trampler is it notably you're not playing swords to plowshares in this deck so you know oh also the fact that the eight is recursive is another big thing um so even if you do kill it once maybe with like an edict effect, or you block it with um with a plague engineer you know they just recast it like the next turn so um, I think that that's another thing right it stresses a card like Hogak takes your limited answers to that card and and stresses it makes you have that answer again and again and again kind of like how you know fighting a life from the loan is kind of meaningless because next turn they just stretch it back
2: let me just tell our listeners that before recording this podcast when we were going over the show notes I was gushing over Hogak because this show led me to believe how...
1: Gushing is, is an understatement, I think. <laughs> yeah, I was going to uh, say bro- the same exact thing. Yeah, like... Wilson would not shut up about Hodak. W- Wilson was like, I'm ready for the Grand Prix. Just give me these. Oh, but I don't have Mox diamonds, man. What am I going to do? Anu, what's your experience been like? Brian, you know, you want to have a barbecue over? We can talk about Hogak and Legacy? Like,
2: But here's why. It's because our, our assignment here was to figure out, you know, what's maybe a good way of attacking this deck. And we started looking at Hogak, and then I started looking at the format, and then I started looking at how it, everybody is terrible against Merit, Lage, and, and Hogak, and what do they do against it, and I started look, shopping for Mox Diamonds and realizing how they've spiked up in price an insane amount recently, which is terrible.
1: Yeah, now look at your Hogak, now look at your metagame, now look at
2: your Hogak, now look at your metagame. But it looks it, is, it looks so good against these four-color decks.
1: I am going to drop a huge bomb here, Wilson. I'm going to also include the listeners in this bomb. I think the Hogak is the Hogak deck, the Hogak Depths deck is overrated. <gasps> I think you're overrated. I understand the paper meta is slow to develop, and I understand that you know when Atlanta rolls around, not a lot of people are going to have their decks optimized to beat Hogak. So you could th- theoretically play Hogak and exploit the sort of deck construction that people are going through. But I think that is exactly what you are doing with the deck, and I think that's the only reason that the deck is particularly good is because it plays a couple of good cards against you know a number of omnipresent matchups.
0: It's gonna be real awkward next week when we see that the four color control deck is now playing
1: a fifth color for Caracas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, been there, done that. Can confirm, I, I I liked it, but there's just too much stuff to. Tr- okay, never mind. I'll uh, I'll go back to my no, but I, I really genuinely do think that 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 the, that the Hogak Depths deck. Say that five times fast. While it is good, I think it is only because it is positioned well in the meta right now and it could easily be pushed out of the meta if people were able to adapt fast enough. Kind of like how if you look at like dredge when it wins an open, or not an open, but a challenge online, it's because people like submitted two pieces of graveyard hate per deck and like you know, then the dredge deck sort of just like stomps all over everyone, that kind of deal. So I I actually disagree with you quite a bit.
0: So the first thing about this Hodak Depth deck is that Most combo decks, they succeed when there's two different axes that you must attack it on. With the Dark Depths combo paired with Hodak, you now have to fight it on the Graveyard Angle, which, who cares if I'm making a Merit Lage? Or you have to then overload on Edict effects for the Merit Lage side, but then you lose to the Hodak deck having uh, Colony Gardens and Satyr Wayfinders. How cool is it that this deck is playing a Theros block common that is pretty much unplayable in every single other deck? No, do not praise the deck for playing Colony Garden. What is wrong with you? It is super sweet. And I think that if you try to fight this deck on one axis, you're going to lose to the other.
1: DN Solver's stream title every time he plays this deck and top 8's a challenge with it is just like playing the, in all caps, worst deck in Legacy with the worst cards in Legacy. And it's hilarious. And then he wins and crushes and beats everyone. Another way of beating these decks is Blood
0: Moon. You play Blood Moon, and now your opponent's 2020 can't be turned on unless it gets destroyed. Well, Hodak allows you to now win through Blood Moon very easily, and these those Blood Moon decks don't really have an answer to Hodak. I'm just saying it solves a lot of problems for that deck, but if you want to beat this deck, Sword Supply Share seems pretty good, Krakus seems pretty good, and those are both cards that Beat both sides of the deck. The downside of this is that Miracles is nowhere to be found because it's not good against the field right now. Maybe we'll see Legacy do that cylindrical thing where Miracles will come back in the next four weeks by Grand Prix Atlanta.
1: That's so tragic, actually. That like I think Miracles was actually like in an okay position for the last GP, and then suddenly it phased out to being really bad. And now, if it actually phases out to being like decent for the next GP, that's that's the funniest thing to me because I think Miracles is in a weird spot right now, and to see it actually be good again would be very, very I don't know. I just it just makes me feel like I'm falling into a lot of dumb luck with the deck, but I agree.
2: I'm gonna attempt to make a useful point, and that is that as I look at this Hogak deck. It makes me realize how bad Edict is because you're it, traditionally you run Edict for this axis of the format
0: exactly,
2: and now the merit lage decks if they all are in this general format are just basically a hundred percent immune to Edict. Bryant listed half the cards that are good against Edict. In addition to ones he listed, they have also Stitcher Supplier, Elvis Reclaimer, Fetch for Dryad Arbor. I mean, it's like, it's like literally something like 20 plus cards can protect you against Edict. So,
0: so I think we should move on to the next deck, which is Ad Nauseam Tendrils.
2: Whoa, snipping that one.
0: All right. Listeners strap in, strap in, strap in, get comfortable, get your popcorn. I think that Ad Nauseam Tendrils has a better matchup against four color control than the Epic Storm.
1: Okay, for everybody who ever, ever wants something to use against Bryant, he just set it, clip it, add it to your soundboard, and whenever you see Bryant, just make it your ringtone or something, and I'll call you. I'll call you so many times. All right, so number one, Plague
0: Engineer. Ad Nauseam Tendrils, for the most part, does not care about Plague Engineer. Sometimes they'll play a main deck empty, sometimes they won't. Regardless, they're not going for it. They're going to pass some flames. They're going to kill you. Pass some flames It's very good against the discard spells. So the couple copies of Thoughtseize in the main deck. Your deck's a little bit more immune thanks to passive Flames. Kalgan's Command. Hey, Passive Flames still good there. But also, this deck does not clock you. It's a very slow deck, so your ad nauseums are very good in this matchup. That goes for both Storm decks. And in general, the four-color control deck only plays six pieces of interaction in your main deck. You have four copies of Forcible, two copies of Thoughtseize. If you look at Harlan's list, he has three copies of Forcible and three Inquisition. Both Storm decks are very good at beating a minimum amount of interaction. This isn't Miracles where they have Counterbalance, Spell Pierce, Dovin's Veto, Storm, none of that. You don't have to worry about that. You have six cards. That's not a whole lot. Like This deck is really beat to, made to beat these mid-range decks, and it's taking a pretty big dodge against combo. I know that I said that Ant's really good. I would guess that Ant's matchup against this is about 72%. T. S. it's not as great. It's about 65% since uh, the London Mulligan. I'm still very happy with that. But if I was just gunning to beat this four-color control deck, I think that I'd want to be playing Past and Flames.
1: Yeah, I will, I will add also in general, if you want to remember that I told you there was a tax to building this kind of deck, right? Um, so if you look at a macro level, just in terms of all combo decks that are being played, Arkham's Astrolab is not a blue card. Yes, it does redraw a card, but you cannot exile it to Force of Will, and I think that is a big, big, big deal. Because I, I, I mean, you're looking at my Miracles deck from you know, It's like a stock Miracles deck, right? You've got like 30 plus cards to pitch to Force of Will. This deck, this four color deck, struggles to get like 21, 22 kind of deals. So there is a real cost. And like Bryant mentions, you can basically pick apart the small fraction of cards that are actually relevant to you, and and try to take over the game. Wilson, do you have anything to say about your former lover?
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I just also generally don't like Ant, so I think that also aligns with what you're saying. Though is like if you, yeah, sure, if you want a gun for this exact deck, maybe Ant is pretty good, but Ant is really just taking a hit against most of the rest of the meta game, and I'm just personally not a fan of of the deck as a whole.
1: War was not a good set for Storm in general. So one
0: thing I've noticed recently is a lot of ant players that I know are not happy with uh, Veil vale of Summer because your opponent cast Veil vale and all of a sudden you can't win and it's become an issue where with the epic storm you have empty the warrants and you have grape shot so you're a little bit more set up to beat a Veil vale of Summer. One thing that I do know is that a very smart and thin Ad Nauseum Tendrils player, Daniel D'Amato, has cut the second main deck past in Flames and is playing a main deck Empty the Warrens, which is something that I mentioned in our combo episode where I talked about adapting to the metagame and to the fly, where I think Daniel is doing a great job of that and recognizing what his opponents are doing to him and how he should combat to beat that.
2: I mean, I've never not played Empty the Warrens and Ant, but Plague Engineer is good against empty the words i'm not saying that's a reason to not necessarily play it
0: so uh our next decks would be reanimator and sneak and show
1: so my take is i think sneaking show would actively want to be playing against these four color decks right payoff is just really good black the discard is annoying but it's certainly beatable you you don't even have access to cards like him to torok and in the daryl slash harlan um snow decks and Hindutarok is one of the best ways for a, for this colored combination to sort of snowball games into into the control player's favor because you just take over by using raw quantity of cards. Uh, whereas this deck is more like, all right, I'm gonna try and thought seize you, and then like maybe set up a prison piece. But the prison pieces are all slow, and it's very likely that the the sneak and show decks, which at this point are very resilient and very able to like punch through a good amount of hate. Quote, look at like JPA's recent success, just or just JPA in general. Like he's just ungodly. I think sneak and show definitely would do a good job at taking advantage of the way that the four color deck is built. I, I do want to add a caveat to that, which is decks can change right daryl's list his way of building the deck harlan's list his way of building the deck those aren't the only ways you can build this deck you have so many cards at your disposal because of the the colors you're playing if you really really think show and tell is seeing a um, an uptick, you can adapt. You can do things like cut the Tarmogwifts. You can do things like add the fourth force of will or this, you know, the first and second force of negation. Those, those are definitely deck building lines you can take. It goes back and forth and back and forth. But if this is the current iteration of the four color snow deck, I would love to be playing some sneaking show combo against, uh, against it. How do you feel about Reanimator though? I know
0: that Anurag and I disagreed before we went live, but I think Reanimator, if I was Eric Landon, I would be licking my lips Thinking about all of these four color control decks that only play six pieces of main deck interaction. I think you're about 80% to win game one. And then post board, you probably drop down to 55 to 60%. They play two Nile Spell Bomb, two Surgical Extraction, but you can beat these cards. You can A, either play Unmaster Cabal Therapy, get rid of them, or B, play cards like uh the one in a red, put a creature into play, stronghold gambit, and just ignore the graveyard. Because they still even post don't play a whole lot of counter magic.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm unsure. I will I will give. Uh, I guess maybe this is just another like, hey, you know, caveat. But you know, the event that these guys did found success in was a team open, right? So just because they did make top eight does not necessarily mean that they're. We I actually don't know what their individual records are, so we should at some point Daryl and Harlan give us that information. I mean, for example, like with the the team open that. I think Cyrus won a long time ago. He went like 10-4 in the Swiss, which is like... I mean, by GP standards, that's not really that good. And he said this himself. So, uh, But but I, I I do think that, you know, maybe this the way they built this deck was sort of intentional. Slack on the combo hate in the main deck at least a little bit so that you can play... Um, you can beat up on all the fair decks that you're expecting to see, like an expected metagame kind of deal. Brian, I will... We did disagree at the beginning before the show notes, and I will say... I think I'm favoring the decision that you're at now a little bit too right now which is that reanimator would probably want to play against this if it's just the two nile spell bombs and the two surgical extractions if it's a routine thing you get to slowly play around it more and more and more and so my my original thoughts. I guess originally I thought that you know Reanimator seems like the kind of deck where if you want to beat it you can, but the problem is it doesn't have that high of a metagame share. Like there's like obviously the Herp Derp draws, and then there's the way that Eric Landon plays it. Like those are the two things that I'd be very very cautious about when when I think about uh, you know Black Red Reanimator. So there's another combo deck that people generally don't consider to be
0: combo, but you cast seven cards and then you win the game. It's uh, a deck that Wilson mentioned before the show that I didn't initially think of as a deck to combat four color control. And then the second he mentioned it, a light bulb went off in my head. And I think that this deck is secretly very well positioned. Burn. Burn him up. This deck has no clock, very little counter magic, it has a couple pieces of removal, and is relying on winning the game using value. It can never beat burn. Ever.
1: Yeah, Baleful Strix is cool against Goblin Guides and Monastery Swift Spears, but I don't think it's, like... No, it's not. It's, It's not cool against them, because
2: Burn players always love to chuck, like, a couple Searing Blazes into
1: their deck, and then you just cry. Or, like, a Smash to Smithereens or something like that out of the board. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Like, the thing about Burn is that you actually, like... Have to end the game against Burn because Burn is typically a deck that will have inevitability against you. Um, because what do they do? They just draw a card, deal through damage, draw a card, deal through damage, draw a card. So eventually, you'll see that your life total will get will get to zero, which is kind of one thing I like about Harlan's deck. While while against Daryl's deck, I think you know this the Burn deck would be fantastic because Daryl's deck probably doesn't kill nearly as fast as it needs to against Burn. Um, Harlan's deck does feature the Tarmogoyf, and Tarmogoyf gets big real fast. And turns sideways real fast and then ends games real fast. And
2: yeah, I mean, not only that, he has the Inquisitions over Thossies, So he has this line of Inquisition and then turn three snap back Inquisition, which is pretty insane, actually.
1: Okay, can we, can we just talk ethics, straight up ethics for right now, just for a quick second? Why do people play Inquisition? I just feel like that card is so lackluster in a world of Force of Will, Jace the Mind Sculptor, Sneak and Show, the insert any card you want here that is more than three cmc like it just seems like you're asking to get rolled on you know what i mean like
0: i had a game earlier today where my opponent went turn one inquisition saw my ad nauseum
1: and then lost the game it was fantastic you know what i get it like the two life can matter and in certain matchups like delver you know probably the the inquisition is good enough because you can just you know, use the rest of your deck to line up, you know, answers where you need to, but Hold Your Horses, hold your horses. No no,
2: Inquisition is fantastic. I've I've played many in Inquisition and legacy decks. And to be fair, I have never just replaced Thought Seizes with Inquisition. But if you're gonna run a lot of that type of effect, I do sometimes like to run some number of Inquisition in a Snapcaster deck. Because while two life is something against some matchups and might sound like not much against others, War life really starts adding up against Delverdex, obviously against Burn. So there's the Snapcaster discard line, which then becomes not good at all against uh, an aggressive portion of the format. Whereas if you have Inquisition, like, for example, the line I just gave you against Burn, that's fantastic. That's a way you're going to beat Burn is stripping two relevant cards out of their hand and losing no life doing that, right? So it's actually, like, pretty good there.
1: I'll give another good scenario for Inquisition. That is when you are all about that value life. So maybe, maybe this is just on another page, but uh, Tomas Mars has a four-color deck that is not very much like Snow, and in fact, it's just all duels, so... You know, pretty hot pretty fire um and he plays a bunch of inquisitions alongside him to Torak, and i think that's kind of interesting too where you maybe want to like set up the way see so inquisition a one drop see that the hand is clear that they can't like spell pierce or fluster storm and then jam him to Torak. and if even if it gets forcible that's fine you know you got your two for one kind of deal so maybe maybe that sort of setup is uh where you you don't care about the four or five cmc spells I don't know, that's maybe another perspective on it and i get it and it's strange to me as a control player who wants to have everything pit pat handled down but yeah i mean the points you're making too they're reasonable all right
0: so i think we should move into the next section which is how do you think we should combat this four color snow control deck well bryant you have your favorite little card here
2: i'll let you you talk about it
0: i think people aren't playing enough copies of engineered explosives which is personally bad for me so if you don't like winning don't play it uh but if you want to crush me, engineer explosives destroys me. But that's not really about me at the moment. It's about beating this four color control deck. Most of their deck costs two mana, and it's not seeing play. I'm seeing these control lists like five O's get published, and miracles is still only playing one answer for permanents that have resolved. What are you doing? Quit playing four copies of Terminus or like a term four, three Terminus and a Supreme Verdict. Start playing Engineer Explosives. Destroy these Renin 6. Destroy their multiple copies of Baleful Strix, Tarmogoyfs. Kill them all.
2: How often do you kill Astrolabes?
0: Probably pretty often, if I had to imagine. But maybe in the longer games that it's less relevant. I haven't played that matchup personally, but I can imagine if it's turn 12 with Miracles versus Four Color Snow, you probably don't want to be destroying the Astrolabes. I could be wrong
1: yeah you're right okay there was once upon a time where i was playing against death and taxes and my opponent played a turn one vial and i force willed it and i felt really good because i did you know they wouldn't be able to abuse mana and then on the second turn they played another aether vial and i was very sad because i used a forcible for seemingly nothing um that seems like the kind of issue that you might run into if you try to fight over the arkham's astral labs especially as a four of you know obviously like you know if if your opponent happens to have a hand where they're relying on the on the uh the Astrolab a lot then yes stopping it dazing it spell piercing it maybe trading with it on a one-for-one level uh makes makes a lot of sense right but i'm not really sure how you would pick that up on the first turn or the second turn or something like that uh, maybe by the definition of your deck like we mentioned earlier right you're a rug delver deck maybe you want to fight over the Astrolabs then uh which would force your opponent to maybe get some more duels out so they can cast their wonky mana base worth of spells um but but it's 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 coin tossy right because you know you don't want to invest in such a such a committal play when you know next turn your opponent follows up with like a ren and six or something weird like that right um ren and six also being a card that fixes the mana so to answer your question wilson i think it's 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 a very tough decision to decide when to counter arkham's astrolabe and even tougher to decide when to kill arkham's astrolabe once it's in play and has already drawn a card sometimes it could be correct there are a number of times where I look at my hand and wish, like, you know, to have an astrolabe, or when did my astrolabe get spell pierced? And I'm just really sad. Other times it's gotten countered and I just play another one or just have, like, the perfect mana in my hand, anyways, thanks to Red Insect. So
2: if misstep were legal, would you be snap misstepping every astrolabe that you saw?
1: Yes. Probably. Yes. I mean, I'd probably misstep almost everything.
2: Every, like the Everything, like, the first thing you see, no matter what it is, you'd just misstep it?
1: Screw your Goblin Lackey. You know, mother runes. Uh-uh. Nah, nah, nah.
2: No, but I'm talking about
1: in an Astrolab deck,
2: would you misstep every single one drop, the, the first one that they played?
1: So if it's built the same way I have built my deck and or the way that Daryl's built his deck or Harlan's built his deck, yes, probably. Brainstorms, Ponders, Arkham's Astrolabs, those are all... In my eyes, I see all 12 of those cards as glue to put together whatever this abomination of a deck is right because like i mentioned there's an actual cost to this deck there's a little bit of setup that is required it's hard to say whether you actually get rewarded like like if you were playing you know back when top was legal top against deliver and you know your opponent plays a turn one sensei's dividing top do you spell pierce that top do you daze that top bob would say no other players would do it same kind of deal here right like it's the glue that pieces this deck together the question is how sticky does this glue need to be how effective does it need to be um and i honestly like that's something i think that could theoretically be mitigated by um deck building on the four color players part and then if you're on the other side of the table you're basically trying to chance to see how well they built their deck and that's like a wouldn't do that at a grand prix though that seems like a lot of risk to take when you don't know your opponent's deck list so here's
2: one card that I like that Bryant hates. Angrath's Rampage. Why do I like this card? Well, it's because of what we just said, there are many two plus drops. It kills Renin 6, it kills a variety of these creatures in the format. It can potentially get rid of a true name Nemesis. It can get rid of a Gurmag Angler, Tarmogoyf, if your if your opponents want to level you. But why did I choose this card? over Dreadbore. well that is because i also want to get rid of chalices and ether vials because i like getting rid of everything brian why don't you like it
0: your opponent has the choice so correct me if i'm wrong but if they have a renin six and an astrolabe they can just sacrifice astrolabe
2: no that's incorrect
1: that is incorrect Okay, it makes it better. Yeah, it makes it a lot better. Actually, can you imagine? Oh my God, that'd be that'd be abominable. God, Wilson, I would I would have judged. I would have looked at you and guy You would not have been able to come back home. You would not have got dinner. You know, for tonight, you would not have passed go. Not collected two hundred. Get the point. Okay, that, that definitely makes it a better card. But
0: uh, going back to like the theme right now is permanent based hate, and we were discussing engineer explosives in these blue white control decks, or it doesn't have to be blue white. It could even be the mirror, but. Council's Judgment is also a card that people should be playing more of. Like they're only ever playing one. And I think people are just misbuilding their blue decks right now because the games are all about permanence, but people are only ever playing one answer or maybe even two. And I think that's just wrong for how the metagame is currently. If the if the games are about permanents, then you play permanent answers. I mean you could also play counter spells and those do fine, but I just think playing one answer to a resolve
1: permanent in your sixties just probably not correct. I mean the thing with a card like Council's Judgment is I get it. I see why it's good and I see why like, you know, you might be very happy about it, but at the end of the day it's really clunky, like disgustingly clunky. Like your Delver player plays red on turn two and then what? Do you tap out on turn three into the days? to play it or do you play around spell Pierce, and by that time they've already accrued enough advantage I mean in some of the matchups I can see it being very good you know like in the Karn matchup for example you'd want council of judgment for sure in the fair Grixis matchup like or like in the fair snow matchup you'd probably want judgment because I mean even just trading one for one with the the, the Ren that has bought back a couple lands is still you know it's not going to ultimate and still it's not going to accrue more advantage um, but they like the Council's judgment not the end-all be-all although definitely the judgment-esque effect Um, is something cool. Recently, I've been toying around with Unexpectedly Absent, which is a little bit slimmer. Is also instant speed, but not as permanent slash resolute, and that has its own set of ups and downs. Uh, Judgment, definitely worth trying a little bit more, and you've actually convinced me, Brian, to try it out some more. So, something that I've read
0: over the last week is, well, if and 6 is an issue, just play Pithy Needle. I put Pithy Needle here under Better Permanent Hate, but it's almost ironic because I don't think Pithy Needle is a playable card in the era of 2019. When Pithy Needle was printed, it was like an automatic four of in almost every single cyborg. I remember it like very vividly. Like Pithy Needle was a $17 card for a very long time, and now I just can't imagine playing Pithy Needle on almost any deck, which is kind of silly, but this deck's playing Colgan's Command. Why are you trying to bring in
1: pithy needle to answer it? Yeah, what Renin Six deck isn't playing a good answer, like you've got abrupt decay, call it Kolagon's command, the rug decks are gonna be killing you. It's also super narrow.
2: Yeah, Revoker is less narrow. It's still not good because of Kolagon's command and everything, but you can Revoker the Astrolabes, but you cannot needle them. So that's sort of interesting.
0: A couple answers that I do like for Renin Six would be Spell Snare. I just don't get how more people aren't playing this card. If the format's defined by two casting Castingoss cards right now, play Spell Snare. It's like a one of.
2: Seems amazing. The reason why I think people aren't playing it is because of a couple things. One is black mana. So a lot of people are casting discard spells and there's only so many slots. And like what Anurag said, when you put in four Astrolabes in your deck, if we're talking about fighting against other decks maybe you yourself have an, have an astrolabe deck there just aren't that many slots for a spell snare but hey maybe if you're playing something like miracles spell snare is definitely the way to go right now the other thing is dreadhorde horde arcanus so because of that you're rewarded by playing proactive cards in dreadhorde decks as opposed to uh, more reactive counter magic so i know the the blue red spells though does play some reactive counter magic but again that's also why dreadhorde horde arcanus is only mediocre in that deck in my opinion
1: yeah there's also a smattering of cards and i said this word for like the fifth time of this podcast but like narset jace you do get to hit things like snapcaster and like stoneforge and things like that but chalice of the void no you get to hit well c- conditionally you can hit chalice right one two and infernal tutor burning wish very important cards true name nemesis that's another big one um, but I don't know. Yeah. Like it, it's, it is by definition, a conditional counterspell. So maybe citing all the fail cases isn't like really productive discourse. Like we all know what it can hit and what it can't hit.
2: It's definitely really, I think it's really good right now. I I'm just saying that the only reason why we don't see as much of it is opportunity cost and the way that decks are constructed, but it is, it does seem like it is better than it has been in a while.
0: One of my favorite narrow sideboard cards is probably very good right now. And it would be the combination of Hydro Blast and Blue Elemental Blast with Renin 6, Dreadheart Arcanist, countering opposing Red Elemental Blasts. It just seems very, very good at the moment.
2: Which do you prefer?
0: Me personally?
2: Yeah, would you play Hydro Blast or Blue Elemental Blast?
0: I am a bling whore, and I play whatever version of a card I have that's nicer. So my Pyro Blasts are nicer than my Hydroblast. I have the new Japanese foils that are signed. I don't have nice Hydro Blast, but I do have the Japanese fourth uh, Black Border
1: Blue Elemental Blast, so I would personally play those. I pick uh, Blue Elemental Blast because Beb is the cutest uh, abbreviation of a card. But I, I guess um, my my initial reaction to Hydro Blast is that the card is absolutely infuriating. Not only because it answers the Ren very cleanly on the stack, but because it also handles the Ren if it's been you know in play for some amount of time right so that's that multimodal aspect extremely powerful now obviously there's a cost to that card um which is like it's situational right like they could just as easily not play a red spell they could just play like leovold and like baleful strix and jason you're looking at this hydra blast in your hand and you're like well why why me it also hits kalgan's command for what it's worth
0: yeah,
2: I was gonna say because of Colligan's command, I would say post sideboard, when games go sort of long, you're probably gonna have targets, right? Like Colligan's command, Ren, and then you're you're most likely playing against some pyroblasts. So between all that, yeah.
1: I would say in the same vein as Hydro Blast, though, like if you're maybe looking for something that attacks like a different subset of cards, like if you're not interested in the spells, but more so the permanence, Celestial Purge is a very nice card, especially in a world where you're worried about Hogak and like Merit Lodge, Chandra, the Torch of Defiance. Actually, that also gets answered by Hydro Blast, but not through Chalice. I'm a very big fan of Celestial Purge. I play it in like all of my Miracle Celestes. Do you really? I think it's a pretty good card right now. I like it pretty much. I, I think I like cards that answer things that have resolved, that are in play more than I like uh, counters on the stack because... Well, Hydroblast does that too. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the reasons why I like Hydroblast so much is because it is multimodal. But the reason I would prefer to have like a judgment over a counterspell in today's meta particularly, and I'm so sorry for all the blue mages, is because there's just way too much crap out there that just like falls through... Uh, that slips through the cr- the cracks, and so I don't know. For that reason, it's like it's kind of frustrating to not. Um... Ee, yeah, that's another good one.
0: While we're talking about the uh, situational counter spells that blue mages play, I'd like to share that I've faced a number of miracle stacks in the last few weeks. I feel like they're playing a lot of odd counter spells like Dovin's Veto, Spell Pierce, Fluster Storm, Force of Negation. I've gotten a number of wins from just playing a Hope of Gearper and attacking. I think that the combo the the combination of counter spells that they're playing are all very similar and they don't do enough different things and it leads to getting punished. If you're running all of these same type of effects, you're going to get punished for not doing something different. And I think that I like my counter spells to all do something
1: a little bit different. I look at it from the miracle side and I think, what are they afraid of? And they're afraid of cards like Jace, Narset those sort of things, maybe like a stifle here and there, you could you get the picture. And so that's why they played that subset of cards, because it also happens to be good against like you mentioned, the Storm deck. But yes, you can definitely exploit that and Hope of gearpor is a as 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 much as I hate it, the Xantid, the buzz buzz, the bug effect is like
2: Do you know what kills Hope of gearpur and counters Burning Wish? Demir Charm. Oh my god, I can't believe you
1: said that. Wow.
0: I have lost to a Demir Charm in a Star City Games event. It did not feel good.
1: The other day, somebody played Tyrant Scorn against me. I had to read the card, so I don't know if that's exactly the same as Demir Charm. But uh, one is one way that you could attack these four color snow decks is with land destruction, like Blood Moon, Back to Basics, and even ch- and even Choke. Mm. Fake news. I agree. Just a PSA, these cards are not effective against Arkham's Astrolab. For example, Daryl's deck has maybe three basics. Harlan's deck has actual five. The Snow Color deck that I've been working on also has five. There are so many games where I've actually just let my opponent resolve. They're back to basics and they're Blood Moon because I have Renin Six and Astrolab going on. And I just start deploying more lands, fetching more basics, or filtering the red into whatever appropriate color I actually need for um, for my whatever cards, I'm, spells I'm casting. Similarly, even a card like Choke, I'm playing the Plains, I'm playing the Mountain in this case there's the forest and the swamp you filter those into blue and suddenly i'm not tapping my island so i'm able to dig towards my answer while also you know not getting locked down by this this mana hate piece tldr i would not rely on the back to basics effect there are a couple caveats the first is if you can manage to somehow keep the mana fixing off the table so, if you can keep Renin 6 off the table, if you can keep Arkham's Astrolab off the table, then yes, your Blood Moon, your Back to Basics will be fine. That is very hard to do against these four color blue soup decks because they have all the best cards. So, you might be trying to counter them, uh, like the Renin 6s and Arkham Astrolabs. But believe me, they will put a good fight trying to resolve their spells. Whether it be through discard or you know their own counter magic, because they play all the colors, so they they get to play the best counter spells. So it's it's a very very tough battle to fight. So I'd rather just go for other plans rather than the 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 blood moons and the back to basics.
2: As you were talking, I just zoned out for a second and I just thought of something. Can I share it with you? Are you ready for this? Hogak and six.
1: I don't know how you do this, but imagine a scenario where you play Ren and six. Then you play Colony garden, garden. Colony Garden goes to the the graveyard somehow. There's so <laughs> many things that you can use.
2: Yeah, the little Saki dude, the the one 2
1: There's a lot to unpack here. You can like use Sylvan Sakekeeper, exactly. Just Ridden six back your dark
2: depths. Just do that. That's all we need to do.
1: All right. Well, that's that's terrifying, and I'm really wishing you hadn't said that. But uh, but yeah. So I know that
0: Anurag and I disagree on this, but. I like my Delver decks to be true tempo decks. I love Rugged Delver. A very, very, very long time ago, a younger Brian Cook used to play Rug Threshold. Werebear. And Werebear, Nimamongi, Fledgling Dragon, that was my jam. So I love Winter Orb, and I still think it's a great choice against these Run and Six decks. Onurag disagrees with me. But every single turn, they're tapping Arkham's Astrolabe. They have the basics. I think how you beat these decks is you get them on a turn where they tap out. And now I know they're playing a land every turn, but your Dazes, your Spell Pierces, they're live. You could stifle their lands, you can keep them off just long enough to apply that final bit of pressure, because these decks are built to stabilize, and I think that I'm not expecting Winter Orb to win the game. I'm expecting it to slow them down long enough to keep my cards alive, so that way I can do my plan slightly better.
1: Yeah, and so the reason I disagree with this sentiment is because I think Winter Orb is good at slowing your opponent down, especially when they have... A very high intensive mana curve, right? So, for example, back in the day, I think the mana intensity came from a card like Sensei's Divining Top, where I would want to fetch, you know, spin my top, fetch, spin my top, fetch, spin my top, and suddenly all my lands are tapped, right? I think it's a little bit different in the context of Renin Six now because you have a card like Renin Six, which is buying back a guaranteed land drop every turn, and when you combine that with the untap ability of or the, the the untap restriction of Winter Orb, your opponent is, your your opponent with the Renin Six is actually putting more mana into play than you are so they're actually it's almost as if they're getting this mana advantage because they're reliably getting land drops every single turn and i get that with winter orb what you're trying to do is a little bit different right rather than engineer a mana advantage by deploying more lands you're trying to leverage very efficient spells the problem with the efficient spells is that while they're efficient they're somewhat narrow and they can be they're, they're conditional so they can be sort of outmuscled, i guess if that makes sense like In a tempo deck, you're
0: trying to clock your opponent very quickly. If you're fetching every single turn, I might be okay with that. So if you're going to fetch and tap out for a Jace the Mind Sculptor or a Command or Liliana's Triumph or anything like this, maybe even Leovold, I think I'm willing to take that trade just because you just lost two life to cast this card that might not even resolve. Because at some point you have to deal with the threat, right? Like if I have a true name in play, let's say I'm playing Rugged Over and I have a true name in play you have to eventually do something and if you're sitting around fetching for three turns to get up to let's say five mana to play around spell piers, that's three life you lost off fetch lanes and my even got to hit you twice are is that not a trade you're willing to take?
1: um contextually I feel like the that these these four color blue soup decks are they're better than that like that kind of situation happens and you can engineer that kind of situation too but it's like there's so much extra baggage in this specific situation like you also have to untap your lands and Renin and Six. it just feels like that's the hurdle. And in my games, whenever I've overcome that hurdle, even if I'm at like a low life total, I am still able to win the, the game like today I had a game against Blue Red Deliver where this exact sort of process happened and Ren and Six just took over the game because I mean it', it, it it's, it's it's not so much about the the true name turning sideways. it's more about, looking at the efficiency of your opponent's removal spells and what your coverage is against them, right? So, for example, like a card like Plague Engineer could totally change the way this true name Winter Orb game is played because it's, it doesn't get you know countered by, like, spell pierce and and pyroblast and things like that right so then like if a threat gets answered then suddenly they get more time to untap and deploy more lands and like it's weird it's weird and i don't want to say any absolutes because obviously you can come up with counter cases here and there but i i think at its core when you look at the fundamental aspect of mana i feel like and 6 is is doing enough work to counteract the 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 sort of oppressive uh, mana oppression that Winter Orb is trying to do N- it doesn't even have to be like a perfect mitigation it just needs to mitigate it enough so that you can deploy some of your threats I will say there is one card that against the, these random six decks that is in my mind much more powerful than Winter Orb um, simply because it is just a blowout like total lockout kind of deal. And that is rest in peace. I think rest in peace right now if your deck can actually stomach it. So looking at you death and taxes, if you're able to play Rest in Peace, resolve it, and then you know, do your the rest of your game plan, you're in a pretty good spot. Cause it completely mitigates Ren and Six. Like I mentioned earlier, one of the downsides to Ren and Six is that you have this lullaby of a turn when your Red and Six is ticking up to four or five, six loyalty, not before it ultimates, or even at seven loyalty, right? It's just buying back lands, right? Not
2: I disagree with something you just said. It doesn't completely nullify run and six.
0: Also you mentioned death and taxes where like the negative ability is the good ability for run and six in that matchup.
2: That that's what that's why I was making that comment. Because yeah, exactly.
1: We're a good team, Wilson. To, to be completely fair, um, I, I want to defend Death and Taxes. And I, I kind of did this earlier, but I feel like of all the tribal decks, this is the one deck that might have a better chance. Because the, the deck has so much flexibility in terms of the creatures that it can play. Uh, For example, you've got like Stoneforge Mystics. You've got maybe like an untapped Mother of Runes, or like with a Vial or
2: something. Death and Taxes is positioned terribly against... This run in six day. Mm,
1: you say that, and I I want to believe you, but I don't want I I want to give it more credit. Like I like you might think it's like what what, what kind of percentage would you give it?
2: Eighty three percent in the four color players' favor.
1: I feel like there's a joke there with the eighty three percent, but I can't remember what it was. But no, my my take on it is probably closer to like forty sixty in the four color favor. What? Yeah. I have played against you, like, a good bit of death and taxes you, recently no.
2: and Well no 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 no. Oh, oh I under I understand why you're you're doing this. Because you're not playing Black. You're not playing Cola Guns Command. You're not playing Plague Engineer, correct? I mean, I'm playing Termin I'm playing Terminus. That
1: like, is not the same as the Not the other same card. thing.
2: Not even close. So I understand. I'm not trying to get after you. But, okay,
1: okay, That that that's fair, sure, I see it, but I, I, I want to. I, I don't want Death and Taxes to be, like, completely shat on, because while I would be sucks. glad to play against Death and Taxes, keep in mind that the deck is not just, like, the deck sucks. only X-1s, right? Like, it's got cool cards, like, Unplayable. Cataclysm, that's everyone's favorite. And I'm going to take the middle-of-the-road Bryant approach here. I
0: think Wilson is being a little bit dramatic, and I think Anurag is trying to defend his deck while making it seem like Death and Taxes is fine. The sad truth is, like, it's just not good for Death and Taxes, but it's not a shit matchup or a shit deck at the moment. It's just not very good. I think it's pretty and good. And Anurag is trying to make it seem better for his Terminus deck, but the Terminus deck doesn't have ways of destroying either vial or permanently locking out 75% of their creatures. It's just a rough matchup at the moment, and I think if you want to beat this deck, you need more copies of Council Judgment. You need your sorts to plowshares.
1: Okay, I'm just going to look at Death and Taxes list. Let's just like briefly look at this, all right? Okay, well, while you're pulling it up, let
2: me provide you some perspective. So when I played I played Grixis... Well, I just really wanted to say something before you got a chance to So I played Grixis a lot last year and just ran over Death and Taxes over and over again. Grix- just traditional Grixis control was very good against Death and Taxes. This new deck is like traditional Grixis Control, plus a dad-blasted main deck Engineer Plague creature, so under Thalia, a Planeswalker that pings and kills everything, and then an insanely awesome mana base with an artifact that makes you essentially immune to their mana plan.
1: These three are all very good components, I have to. Okay, I'm gonna give credit where credit is due. We mentioned XJ Cloud before. This guy has been on a tear with death and taxes, right? So he must be doing something that nobody else is because he's doing well in paper. Probably dodging this deck. He's doing well online. I mean, I'm I'm down to do the research and I'm down to ask him, John, if you uh, want to provide any feedback. I don't know if you listen to this podcast or not, but I'm looking at his deck list right now. I see. Four Stoneforge Mystics, one Brimaz, one Hallowed K- uh, Spirit Keeper, Sanctum Prelate, Palace Jailer. Uh, the equipment's pretty nice, but I guess K-Command does a pretty good job. He's got a sideboard plan of three Cataclysms, and I think that one is actually a very, very powerful card in the matchup. Uh, the rest in peace he's actually got one of, which is really interesting because his, his whole spread of graveyard hate is is different. And this is the his list from June 23rd, so it's a little bit old. All right, so Honorag mentioned the
0: split of the Graveyard Hate. Well, the issue is that you can't just overload it and rest in peace because then you'll never beat Reanimator or Storm. It's just like kind of a slower, clunkier spell. So what you really need is you need Surgical Extraction or Fairy Macabre to slow down these decks long enough to get Rest in Peace in play.
2: Well, I think that the June 23rd uh, date stamp sort of summed up that argument. So
1: let's move on. Okay, uh... wait, wait, from four days ago, from four days ago. He's got a Mirren Crusader. Otherwise, he's got everything else. Oh, and he's got Tomeek. Tomek. Highly relevant. The Distinguished Advocacy.
2: <laughs> that card's Tomeek. pretty
1: sweet, actually. Did you know it's a legend?
2: Oh, yeah.
1: And it stops Renin six entirely? That's crazy, right? Yeah, that Um All right, so
2: how do we think you could improve four-color snow control? If you are the four-color snow control player, how can you improve the Stock lists.
0: I think we should give a little bit of credit to Arkin. He was the first person I saw doing this. He added in Dreadhorde Arcanist into this style of deck, and he wasn't playing Baleful Strix, or maybe it was Snapcaster Mage. But the repeated Snapcaster Mage effect is very good in this deck, but you have to change your deck slightly. So the Daryl Ayers style list or Harlan Freyr style list only have 13 spells to flash back. I would probably play a couple more preordained style effects in my deck to maximize the Dreadhorde Arcanist. In my opinion, it's probably better in the mirror match than something like Baleful Strix or a Snapcaster Mage, considering it doesn't die to opposing copies of Renin 6.
2: Yeah, I like playing Dreadhorde, and you don't have to play like a full four. I don't. Uh, Arcan was playing what, three or four or something? He was playing a lot, right? But I mean, you could even play just two copies of this card in this deck, and it would go pretty well maybe up the one drop count like bryant said by one to two copies but if you're only playing two it 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 already fits in pretty nicely another thing i would do with that though is there there don't really seem to be any lightning bolts right now it seems like everybody's just maxing out on fatal pushes if you're gonna play all these cards that interact with the graveyard i really like at least one lightning bolt i mean bolt is really good at dealing taking down planeswalkers when you're flashing it back Especially if you add in the Dread Hordes to uh, essentially flash it back again, so that's maybe one change I would make to the deck as well.
1: Yeah, I think Dreadhorde Arcanist definitely. I mean, it's it's shown its power, and this sort of mid range deck, control deck, whatever you want to call it. Also, like you mentioned, uh, well, it, it can leverage it very well. Uh, just because of the diversity of cards in post board, it only gets stronger um, when you add in all the relevant cards. But synergy with Kolagons Command, Wilson. I know you like that card a lot. Like you mentioned, what you want to be able to do is in the mid game, you want to use Colaghan's command to buy back that that you know contextually critical creature. So if it's a plague engineer because they've got true names or you know a bunch of X ones, perfect. If it's uh, the game is a lull, then yes, you want to buy back you know your value engine, whether it's Snapcaster Mage or or, or Dreadhorde Arcanist. That's also another powerful play. I personally would just look at another color. I think. If the format gets too hostile to this four color snow deck, cut the black, add the white, swords to plowshares, tundra baby. Um, all of that is something that I'm actually pretty, pretty excited about. I've been playing blue, white, red, green. Um, I think actually a Delver variation in those colors made uh, top eight at MKM Frankfurt this weekend. Um, so that was kind of interesting. I have to look at the list and. Pick up some more information but i think swords to Plowshares shares is exactly where you want to be against merit lodge and and hogak um i think hate bears are especially good against combo in a way that thought sees particularly is not because it's just like like brian mentioned it's a permanent effect you slam it into play they have to deal with it otherwise it just keeps you know obstructing your opponent i I actually think this version of the deck might be able to leverage Stoneforge Mystic too, right? This four color deck doesn't need to just be Grixis. It could just be like Blue Eyed Blade with Red and Six. Stoneforge color. is terrible be right be now. Interesting. I, I'm i curious. Um, I think there are certain subsets of the format where Stoneforge is fine. Like if Mono Red Stompy makes a revival, Stoneforge Mystic and Batterskull and Name are particularly good against that deck. Um, the issue is that it's very bad against Hodak. So like you're playing white to make your hodak matchup better but it's also a lot worse i don't even think it's that bad against hogak because you've got Caracas and swords to plowshares like if you fit, can fit Caracas in your deck too that makes it even better and plow is going to be good against hogak and then you've got the ground blockers for all the weenie one ones my issue is as is
2: bad in mirror matches like if you played this deck against the traditional non-white four color decks i think you're at a pretty big disadvantage
1: yeah, and I wonder if it there's a world where you could even like trim on the Stoneforge package and to bring Menaceri in like mentor. you know the haymakers that actually matter in the matchup like like the rent.
2: Oh, snap, Oh, snap. Hey, I do like the. I think on rug your deck is quite good at dealing with the dark depths menace. So, um, you know, going back to the deck without the Stoneforge is just the fact that you have. These Horse shares, and I guess you've toyed around with Caracas and stuff, that's really a way of fixing that problem, so that's pretty cool.
1: I've also got some Humilities in there to combo with the Ren and Sixes, but uh, that's neither here nor there. I think Humility is actually pretty interesting with Ren and Six. In fact, maybe this is something that I should look into and desperately work on, because I know some people like hearing about, like, Brews, but I really think now that Veil of Summer has been printed, you know, the color combination of Naya could make some sweet like Artifact Enchantment Planeswalker control deck that has Pyroblast and Veil of Summer for the combo matchups and then, you know, for other matchups, I don't know what you do. You can get access to, like, Punishing Fire and Humility.
0: Did you know that in 2007 that the premier control deck in Legacy was a red-white control deck? I
1: didn't know that, actually. That's interesting.
0: Rifter it was an Astro Slide Lightning Rift deck. I'm not joking with you. It was
1: designed to be goblins. It ran Humility. Yeah, it is close to 1 a.m., so I guess we'll wrap up. But um, if you guys have any ideas on how to make this deck, how to break this deck, um, I'm interested to hear all your brews. I've had so much fun playing with Red and Six and Argum's Astrolab that I don't really even feel, like, inspired to pick up Miracles right now because I feel like this deck has just so much design space open for it. And I feel like, come around Atlanta, maybe we can find the next, quote, broken thing. So, you know, I'm interested in all your ideas. For example, here's an interesting card. Uh, that you get to play in this sort of deck. Instead of Disenchant, you get to play a card like Return to Nature. I'll let you Google that one. But on that note, guys, I think we're going to uh, wrap up here. Um, thank you, Bryant. Thank you, Wilson. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, everyone who um, is listening. See you next time.
2: Thank you, com.
0: Hi, I'm Adorak Dots, and this is episode 12 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. I have with me this weekend, uh, Brian Cook, and Wilson Hunter. How's it going, guys? Oh, that's great, Wilson. I'm glad to hear your diet's going well.